As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from the silver, and the smith has material for a vessel. Take away the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. What your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor himself. And do not reveal another's secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you, and your ill repute have no end. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or foot that slips. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head. And the Lord will reward you. The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue angry looks. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Like a muddied spring or polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. It is not good to eat much honey. Nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before your word and before you. And we ask that you would speak in the reading and the preaching of the scriptures and that your spirit would work in our hearts that we might hear from heaven. Oh God, might we hear from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
I assume all of you have in some form or fashion been glued to the news for the last three or four or five days, figuring out if this massive hurricane was going to wipe us off the face of the planet. Of course it hasn't. It has, however, provided one of the great chuckles at the media over the last, I don't know, as long as I can really remember. You've probably seen it, you might have. It's actually on the front page of one of the websites, uh, famous news sites, this morning, even though we, we saw it a couple of days ago. Nick and I have been laughing for two days now. It's one of the veteran Weather Channel newsmen who's out on site to the coast of North Carolina as the waves and the wind are coming in. And he's all braced for the wind, and you can see he's got the microphone, and he's got his jacket up and his hood up, and he's all set like in like power rock and roll stance, you know, ready for the wind to come and get him. And while he's conducting his thing, acting like the wind's all big, these two guys just walk behind him, just normal, casually. (laughs) Shorts, a t-shirt. Their shirts aren't even whipping from the wind. You can tell he's totally fake. And you're like... If I can't trust the Weather Channel, I mean, who am I to trust if the Weather Channel is lying to me? And it's been great because they had the opportunity to actually out their guy, to just be like, (laughs) yeah, it was silly, wasn't it? And of course, what do they do? They double down. It was amazing. They actually doubled down. They came out and said, oh, yeah, he was fatigued from all of the wind that he had been in. And the gusts that he was receiving were different than the gusts the guys 35 feet behind him were receiving. And he was really having a tough, tough go of it. And you have to go. I mean, if the weather channel is lying to me. I mean, we're not even talking about the political spectrum of conservatives lying about liberals or liberals lying about conservatives. We're talking about just the media in general, the the weather channel. I actually saw it on Twitter about 15 minutes after it came out. And it was hilarious watching kind of the Twitterverse respond of like, who can you trust? And the sad part is there are actually people seriously asking that question about the weather channel. Like, can you trust the Weather Channel? Like, no, of course you can't. I mean, look outside. Of course you can't. We were supposed to be all be dead by this point from the giant storm. And it's intriguing, actually, how often we see our current culture and the current uh, social climate that we're in asking those same sorts of questions. I mean, maybe it's not about the Weather Channel this time, but if they're lying to me, who can I trust? I mean, if we find out that this pseudoscience is fake or that this was using false data or that, who can I trust to tell me how the world is supposed to operate? Which is why we're in the book of Proverbs. Because it is one area, it's all of Scripture ultimately, where you can trust everything that is said here and it tells us exactly how the world operates. This section here is going to walk us through really the social aspect of humanity. How do people interact with other people? How do people figure out how to deal with other people? 
And I think if we're going to be honest, to start out just with initial application from the beginning, if we're going to be honest about ourselves, I think we all wrestle with that question at some point through our normal, regular, daily existence. I mean, what is running through that person's head? Because they seem crazy. How is it that people do what they do? Why do they do what they do? Here is going to provide us, and we're going to look at three specific realms of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 25. The first realm is this realm of the king. Now, obviously, we don't have kings, queens. We're not, well, maybe you are Canadian. I don't know some of you. If you're Canadian or British, you have uh, a queen. But most of us Americans, we don't. But we do deal with authority. And Proverbs 25 starts out with a series of kind of explanations as to how authority operates. And it begins with the right ordering of authority. It is the glory of God to conceal things. It's part of his glory to take things that he knows, that he created, that he designed, and to hide them in such a fashion that we don't figure them out until later. Those of you that are maybe a little bit older than I am in the room, I'm being generous there, (laughs) think about how science has changed from when you were a child to now. And I'm going to give you an answer. It's a massive amount. Because just the amount of science that has changed from my textbooks when I was a kid to my children's textbooks is a massive amount. What are the smallest parts of the atom? You realize that's a totally different answer than when I am 39, when I was a kid. Wait, we're finding new things out? Yeah, it's been God's glory to hide them and to conceal them. And yeah, we've spent the last 15 years and a bajillion dollars trying to figure out what bosons are and quarks are and all those things. And God's known all of the inner workings of everything from the beginning. So it's part of the design of God to to hide his wisdom, to hide his glory, to conceal the very way that creation operates. But it's part of the glory of mankind. It's part of the glory of the king to figure it out, to understand it, to understand that medicine is an exercise in glory, figuring out how the body works and God's design for that. It's part of the king's mission, and here not meaning king specifically uh, only, but the larger governments as well. And part of that is because back in this time, maybe a little bit more needs to be today, authority was connected with scholarship. Wisdom was connected with the king because the king was partially, and maybe not first and foremost, but a large part, a scholar, which we would do well to consider sometimes in our country. But doesn't stop there. It turns the text very rapidly from God's inscrutable wisdom to the king's. For as the heavens for height, the earth for depth, so the heart of the king is unsearchable. And maybe we could substitute here for our own benefit the heart of the president. Pick any president of the last hundred years. I don't care. Is it possible for us to fully understand all that's operating in the mind of the president or of a king or of a queen? 
No, in fact, actually, as normal, most of us, normal, regular lay people in our country, we don't understand a lot of what's going on behind the scenes. We have no idea. I remember reading an article maybe, I don't know, it's probably five or six, seven years ago now, and it was an article about uh, President Bush, the second one, uh, in how he had changed combat in uh, the Middle East. And it was from one of the, not the highest ranking official in the military, it was one tier down. And the guy was saying, all of the privacy laws prevent me from telling you what and why. I will say this, when the history books are later shown to be you know, fully revealed and made known, President Bush is going to go down as the top three president in the history of the United States because of how he changed combat in ways that we don't understand. Again, I can't comment to the truthfulness because I'm not that high, but that's the exact point. I don't know what's operating behind the scenes, but there's obviously more information. I have a dear friend I remember saying a number of years ago, I wonder what it is that causes senators, congressmen, presidents, to change so much what they, once they get in office. Why is it that the second they get elected, they all seem to compromise? What's happening behind the scenes that we don't know about? What a great point. We don't know what's happening. We don't know, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. And maybe to be cognizant of that, to be aware of it. But then here comes prescriptive verses 4 and 5, how to fix that. How to deal with that, how to shape that. Take away the the dross, the the trash, the, the garbage from the silver. Burn off all the crud. And the smith has material for a vessel. So you purify the metal, make it clean, make it nice, make it pretty, and then you can make something lovely. And likewise, for the king, the way that he has an excellent reign is to take away wicked. Take away the wicked, take away wickedness from his presence. One commentator notes that one of the best ways a president or a king could reign was to make sure his inner cabinet or inner circle is filled with non-wicked men and women. I think actually if you just watched the media over the last maybe decade, you would be able to prove that point fairly clearly. The importance of a godly or holy or even just good cabinet is really important. And then lastly here, just one little note for how you should interact with the powerful. Don't put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand at the place of the great. It's better to be told, come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Just standard etiquette. It's way better to have someone of importance say, hey, would you come join me than for you to try to join them and then get shot down. Far worse to be the one who tries to proclaim themselves great and then told to go to a lower position of nobility. In fact, Jesus uses these two verses as he tells a parable much later about the same exact point. And it's interesting how God has designed here, this is just unbelievably practical wisdom. And I think there's a lesson to be learned even in that alone. That God's word is designed for the salvation of souls, absolutely. And God's word is designed for godly living, absolutely. God's word is designed to inform our daily life. 
so that when we go to talk about our president or our judges or our legislative branch, it informs the conversation. It informs us how we think about it. In fact, should any of us here ever desire to run for political office, it even informs how she or he should shape their political involvement. It doesn't stop there, though. It builds. Not just dealing with the king, that's important, but then dealing with the the normalcy of life, those things that we do far more often than we deal with politics, and that is we deal with the bozos around us. I put more, I guess, more theologically conflict. How do we deal with the conflict in the world around us as we deal with neighbors that are crazy or family members that are irritating? (laughs) Verses 8 through 10 give us a good starting point. Be cautious in how quickly you bring up conflict. Don't use every opportunity to deal with conflict. What your eyes have seen, so you, you so describing an actual situation, here specifically with a neighbor, you're looking out your window, whatever, in your backyard, and you see your neighbor doing something evil, stupid, dumb, wicked, hey, watch this, whatever, you wanna, whatever way you want to phrase that. Do not hastily bring them into court. You don't have to deal with everything, and you don't have to do it rapidly. You don't have to do it immediately. Why? For what will you do in the end when your neighbor actually puts you to shame? You've pulled the trigger too rapidly. You've dealt with it too quickly. You you sued them before you knew the rest of the story. Or you didn't have an actual case where you find out that the stupid thing that you thought they were doing wasn't actually what they were doing. Instead, verse 9 and 10, go argue your case with your neighbor in private. You don't have to go public with it right away. Otherwise, he will, those who hear you will bring shame upon you, and you will be the one who suffers in the end. Oh, what good godly wisdom this is. To be careful with the pace with which we deal with conflict. To be wise with how frequently we deal with conflict. I'll give you an illustration of maybe another way this could be applied and should be thought about is what kind of parents would we be if every single time we saw our children disobey, we addressed it every time? Well, I'll ask it a little differently. How, how would your relationship with the Lord be if every single time you disobeyed, he immediately disciplined you for it? Life would not be very enjoyable now, would it? Because I don't know about you, but I know about me, and I would be under constant discipline because I'm constantly sinning. I mean, just the, the desires of my heart, the desires of my mind. That's why the Lord is so clear in saying he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love is that he doesn't immediately discipline every time. We might even go so far as to say God is infinitely wise to pick his battles correctly. And yet, how often do we forget that same concept? How many 
young men have forgotten in their early years of marriage to pick their battles when to fight with their spouse and when to go, I love her, it's not, we're just not going to do that. When to overlook it. How many wives have forgotten to be careful and intentional about picking her battles? Knowing when and how to bring the conflict up. In fact, actually, it gives us a better remedy instead of simply going to court every time. It's to to deal with things in private first. Instead of going public with everything, to deal with things in private. I remember reading a preacher story years ago, and this one's actually a true preacher story. I say preacher story because half the time they're just totally made up and not even real. Uh, This one's a true one where a preacher had gone to uh, visit a family. He was visiting new family in the church, whatever, and uh, dessert had been made. It was cookies or something, and it was burnt. And he, I, I still, I can't conceive of a preacher doing this, but whatever. He began to ridicule the burnt cookies, which is just shocking to me. Um, I mean, I, I can burn water, so I won't ridicule anything burnt. <laughs> Not knowing that it wasn't the wife that had made them, but it was the teenage daughter who was sitting next to him. Who ends up being the one who looks with ill repute after that? Is it the daughter? Is it the mom? Or is it the preacher? Too often we go public with our grievances. We go public with our frustration. We go public with our arguments. And you end up in situations like the Weather Channel found themselves in where they're doubling down on some stupid thing that they should have just been like, yeah, he was being a bozo. And it puts it in a sense of scale for us. In verse 24, this is the one that kind of frames out the emotional content of this. It's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Put in maybe southern language, it would be, it's better to go live in the shed than it is to share the house with the wife who's quarrelsome. And you know, in Scripture, anytime God says anything, it's really important that we remember it. When He says it twice, it's important that we really remember it. And when He says it thrice, it's something that we really, really need to pay attention to. This is the third time this content has been expressed. This is actual, almost a direct quote of a previous chapter. And the, other, it had, the next chapter had it kind of in the reverse. It is incredibly important that we get a sense of what conflict does to the home when unmanaged, when not carefully tended to, when not watched over. You have now the situation where the family's in hiding from the wife. Gone here is the language of a husband enjoying the wife of his youth. Enjoying the delight of his eyes. Instead, the conflict has reached such a crescendo that he'd rather be miserable. Living on the tiniest little plot of land than to actually be near. It's actually built one more time, even more strongly, just a couple of verses later. In verse 26, 
Again, this probably doesn't resonate with most of us because most of us don't live off of wells that we've dug. We're on water that's on a deep well or on city water. Verse 26, like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Again, this conflict and godly conflict resolution is compared to a pool, a pond, a spring that's either muddied or even worse yet, maybe has like an animal that's died in it and has fouled the water. I mean, you know, if you have like a a lake that you want to go maybe drink from, if you've ever been backpacking and been tempted to, ooh, I'm thirsty, I'll drink from that. And then you look over on the other side and there's some sort of dead creature just rotting in the water. That water's poisonous. You don't drink that. It's going to make you miserably ill. It's going to ruin you. It'll wreck you. And here, the, the idea of this righteous man who caves before the wicked, instead of figuring out when to fight and how to fight and holding his ground, instead, he becomes like that polluted fountain. He becomes worse than useless. You realize that's what a polluted well is. It's worse than useless because you actually have to actively prevent people from drinking from it because it will kill them. It's interesting, actually, kind of if you pause and think about it just for a moment, how much the scriptures deal with how to have godly conflict. It's almost like God fully understands that sinners are going to fight a lot because they're going to sin against each other. And it is intriguing, too, is in the later books in the New Testament as it goes through working through the church and what it means to be a part of the church, almost all of them have some sort of section devoted to how we're going to to deal with conflict or acknowledging it or preventing it or carefully tending to it. My favorite illustration of that, Ephesians, you have one and two, that clear presentation of the gospel. And then three and four immediately go to the heart of this. How will we pursue the unity of the church? Before going to five and six, where we get to see the specific different relationships. Husband and wife, child, slave, And then all of us gathered together in the great cosmic combat against the devil. It's almost like God understands that conflict is going to be a real, hopefully you're catching the sarcasm that he absolutely does understand that conflict is going to be a real part of the church. So it should, one, not surprise us when it happens but two should be viewed as an opportunity for holiness and unity among the saints. Remember, as a young pastor in this church, still trying to get my sea legs under me, having no idea kind of how the larger world operated, I guess, and was talking with one of the other pastors in our presbytery and talking about just kind of how the session worked, how presbytery worked, how leadership worked and such. And I remember him just kind of grinning, twinkling his eye, and he said, Michael, you need to remember, sometimes the Lord works the most clearly in 51-49 votes. And as a young pastor, I'm panicky like, 
I have a 51-49 vote, which means that we're just barely over, I, I'm not going to be pleased with that. Like, it's going to bother me. I want everybody to vote all the same, all the way, all the time. It's like you have to understand the Lord gives different gifts. The Lord gives different ideas. The Lord gives different personalities, different opinions, so that we arrive at wisdom together. We don't need to be afraid of the conflict. We need to be afraid of handling it poorly. Not afraid as much as concerned. We need to be aware of the danger of conflict if it gets out of control or if it gets ignored when it should be dealt with or it gets handled in private when actually it does need to be handled publicly or vice versa. We need to be thoughtful about conflict. I want to ask you just one kind of sort of pragmatic approach to this. When you find yourself in the middle of conflict, do you ever kind of stop and go, how do I get to glorify God in this? How do I get to glorify God in this argument with my sibling? Or how do I get to honor the Lord being the victim in this case? Or even how do I get to be the one who honors the Lord as the one who has sinned in this situation? I mean, if you've been married for any season of time, think about how your arguments would have been different in those early years if you had walked away for a moment and said, how am I going to honor God? And actually contemplated that. I mean, I'm just going to lovingly suggest it's probably going to take a lot of the heat out of the argument fairly rapidly. The arguments I had with my sister when I was a child... I mean, all I was thinking about was how I could crush her and not get caught. (laughs) I wasn't thinking about how I would honor the Lord, how I could minister to her in the midst of this. I love my sister, but I want to win. Victory more. And unfortunately, how often do we approach conflict the same way? Pursuing victory at all costs instead of pursuing godliness and the health of the saints. There's one other theme in this passage that's going to come out that I'm going to suggest is another kind of larger picture solution to conflict. It's this idea of timeliness, of having a a wise sense of awareness of when things need to work and what needs to be put in place. Verses 11 and 12 kind of capture this. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver, which, ladies, y'all may not be eagerly craving a ring. That is a silver ring with apples of gold on the top. But in this culture, that would have been one of the paragons of beauty. It would have been lovely. Or even more so, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. It's this idea of a clear and wise awareness of what to say and when to say it. Again, it goes back to that picking your battles thing. It's being aware of when things need to happen and how. That way you don't find yourselves in situations where like, man, I wish I had known that maybe three days ago. Boy, that would have been useful. I wish I'd known the hurricane was going to be a dud here in Fort Mill. We would not have bought so many snacks that I would have eaten. I wish I would have known X before I said or did Y. Now instead, a 
A word from the wise is that thing that fits perfectly for the moment. That when you hear it, you're like, oh, that's exactly right. Ah, I got it. And if you have friends like that, you know exactly what that word feels like, don't you? Maybe in a moment where you're a bit insecure. A little bit wobbly on the inside, not entirely right. And that perfectly balanced word comes and you're like, oh, that feels so good. So encouraging. So kind. So measured. Or even... Yeah, when you have to be the one who is the, the receiver of the rebuke. That it's a rebuke that's measured correctly for the listening ear. That on a scale of 1 to 10, the rebuke matches the crime. And we've all been victims of those, haven't you? Where you commit a crime that is sin on a scale of 1 to 10 to your neighbor, it's like a 2.5, and, and they come at you with a 9.5, and, and you're like, whoa. A sense of balance, of proper measurement. It gives us here in verse 20 uh, the kind of classic, classic illustration of what this doesn't look like. You have someone who's grieving, who's filled with sorrow and sadness, and what is the unmeasured word looks like? It looks like somebody's skipping into their presence and singing happy songs and giving all the wrong words. And what does that feel like? Well, it feels like a shock on a cold day or if you ever made the volcano when you were in elementary school. You know, the soap, baking soda and the vinegar. It bubbles over. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel nice. And again, you, you know that feeling where when you're in the midst of sorrow and the unbalanced, untimely, unmeasured word just wrecks you inside. It's presented in the positive in verse 15. Here going back to the idea of the king and you want to change the king's mind. How do you change the king's mind? Is it to come at him hard as you can? Both barrels, see if they'll change. Well, of course not. They're just going to hunker down. American politicians have yet to figure this out. This does not work. Double down. What does the other side do? They double down again. The first side does the same. It, It just intensifies and escalates. Instead, patience and a tender tongue. What a great portrait there. A tender tongue could break the hardest of bones. Because the pressure gets to be applied exactly where it needs to be applied. Let me think of this with David and Nathan. David's committed adultery, committed conspiracy, committed murder of the woman he's had adultery with, of her husband. And the man of God comes and does he walk in and be like, hey, by the way, you're a murderer, you're a conspirator, you're an adulterer. And maybe worse. Well, he doesn't do that, does he? He comes in with a, a very timely, very gentle story about a sheep. What would happen if somebody in your kingdom had their favorite sheep taken away? Of course, David gets all emotionally invested. Ah, and then you're the man. 
and David breaks. It's a a very measured, very well-balanced, very well-timed word so that it's gentle and tender and direct when it needs to be. And then one more thing, just... uh, I thought about skipping these verses, but realizing, you know, we haven't talked about this that carefully yet in the book or that clearly, but something that certainly needs to be learned today. The idea of boundaries and how much they can really help prevent and heal conflict. Verses 16 and 17. (laughs) Maybe not the most delicate of illustrations. If you found honey, only eat enough for you, please. Don't eat so much that it makes you barf. Now, maybe for us, the good illustration wouldn't be uh, honey, pick your favorite. I mean, funnel cake might be a better illustration on that one. You don't get it that often, but when you do, it's like, I will eat all of the funnel cake. All of them ever made. Or maybe cotton candy, that's your vice. But instead it makes you sick, it sours in your stomach, instead you puke it up. Verse 17, oh yeah, by the way, treat your own presence that way. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house so that he doesn't get sick of you and puke you up. (laughs) Have a concept of boundaries, of knowing when you've overstayed your welcome, which is ironic coming from me because I will stay at your house way too late when I come visit. I get the chuckles from the people that I've done that to. (laughs) That makes me laugh. But it's interesting how in our current culture, again, and sometimes even maybe inside evangelicalism, we've been, and the South is really bad about this, taught that there are no good boundaries. That the idea of saying, no, you can't do that. No, this is how our boundaries are drawn. This is how our family is going to behave. This is how mom and dad are going to behave. This is how children are going to behave. These are the boundaries that we've set in place. It's like we've forgotten that those can be good and helpful and holy and healing things. And the result is this constant mingling of things that don't need to be constantly mingling and it makes us sick. Because we overindulge. We're in the middle of a kind of a crisis inside the church. Tom and I were talking about this Friday. Evangelical church is even uh, kind of having its hand tipped as having similar problems to what the Catholic church is dealing with in Philadelphia and the larger culture as a whole in terms of maybe improprieties that have been done and not necessarily being watchful and careful in sexual sin. And you really all that is is just saying, look, we just didn't have a good use of boundaries. If we were willing to set proper boundaries, we would not be in the same situation. How many of those situations are just, they were the direct result of not enforcing wise and prudent boundaries? And when we stop and kind of think about all of these things, this is God giving us a path for living. And when we do that, I want to draw our attention to one more thing right before we come to the table is to understand that this is kindness from the Lord. 
That when we come to chapters like this that are explanations of what wise living looks like, it's easy for us to go, well, I need to do this and not do that, and miss the fact that this is an exercise in God's kindness. He doesn't have to tell us these things. I mean, he could have just said, (laughs) have fun figuring that out. It'll only take you 5,000 years, and even then you won't get it. Instead, he's actually written it down and explained for us how we should live as God's people, as God's saints, that we together, as a church, as the one body of Christ, might live holy lives because we've been commanded to be built together as the body of Christ. And if we wish to have unity as the saints, to be that one Lord, one faith, one baptism, because we are one body, we need to have this sense of wisdom in our lives and be grateful to the Lord that he has given it, that he has shared from heaven the ways in which we should live. For he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And further, I bring it all back to the beginning with our glorious little video clip from our fantastic weatherman who will be my favorite weatherman for the rest of my life. You see, the real problem with it is that we watch that and we say, my goodness, what a hypocrite. What a hypocrite. What what a liar. And unfortunately, we have those same complaints too often placed against the church. And I would suggest so often that's placed against the church because the church has not been diligent in seeking to understand and apply basic daily wisdom. May it be that God would build in us his wisdom that we would be a holy and shining light to the nations around and glorify him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, forgive us for our sin and our foolishness. We do ask that you would equip us to live holy lives. Prepare us even now as we go to your table in Jesus' name. Amen.